Welcome. Happy St. Patrick's Day. See if everyone's wearing their green. Very nice, very nice. Find someone Irish and give them a big kiss today. It's the only day of the year we get the love, so we're gonna live it up. Anybody know the story of St. Patrick, by the way? The real Patrick? If you don't, go on the Wikipedia or Google St. Patrick. I just posted an article today that I'd written a few years ago. But his story is actually pretty incredible. He's one of the uh, most amazing people in church history, one of the few that actually deserved the title saint in the capital S. So uh, read up on Patrick. That's your homework today. <clears throat> We're in Exodus. Last week we left off Exodus 4. Moses returned to Egypt. Him and Aaron showed the elders of Israel the signs that God had given them to perform and spoke all the words that God had told them. In other words, they were going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh was going to refuse. His heart was going to be hardened. And God would display his power over the gods of Egypt through the actions of Moses in the Exodus. That's the main event. That's what's going on. And that's what's going to span the next eight chapters in Exodus. Um, the, the theme of this section in Exodus is who will serve who? That's the theme that, that dominates the first half of the book of Exodus. Who will serve whom? Right now, Israel's serving Pharaoh. Moses is to take them out so that they can serve Yahweh. And the word serve does double duty. It means to work or it means to worship. It has both meanings. So what God is doing in the Exodus is he's rescuing Israel from one master and bringing them under the control of another master. The difference is one is an illegitimate master, an oppressive master, as we'll see this week, and one is the only legitimate master that people should have. So it's a theme in Exodus. It's not just, a lot of people in popular culture get it half right. Exodus is not just about freedom from slavery. It's about freedom from one slave master into service of another. And that will be the dominant theme throughout the rest of the first five books of the Bible, and actually all of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Paul will always refer to himself as a slave of Christ Jesus and use the slave imagery because in the world of the Bible, everyone is a slave to someone. It's just a question of who. And the answer is the one who, the only one who has the right for us to serve, which is God who created everyone. So that's what uh, the Exodus is about. And it's also, the Exodus is primarily evangelistic. The Exodus is primarily evangelistic. It's to show the nations, and at this time, Egypt represented the height of the nations, the height of civilization. Um, it's to show the world who the one true God is. That was Israel's calling from the beginning. Remember back in Genesis, when God calls Abraham and gives him this promise to his seed, that's the whole basis of this entire thing that we're studying called the Exodus. The whole basis of the Exodus is the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, that your people will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, but I will bring them out, punish the nation that enslaved them, and bring them into the land that I promised, so that they will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's the big picture in the Bible, is God is doing all of this stuff in order to reach the world. He is a missionary God from the beginning. So when you read it, it's really easy to forget everything that's come before Exodus 
and to just read Exodus as God dealing with his people, the Jews, instead of seeing the message for what it is, which is God fulfilling his promises to Abraham to create in him a seed, a people, that would then expand and reach the entire world with the knowledge of God. So that's the storyline that gets lost, and it gets lost early. Uh, even by Israel themselves, they lose the plot line, and God sends them prophet after prophet after prophet, and eventually God sends himself in the form of Jesus to get the story back on track. So all of that is really, really, really important to keep in mind. can't emphasize it enough because we're not taught to read the Bible that way, but it's the way that it was written, and so we have to reclaim that. So in Exodus 4, then, it ends with a good scene with the elders worshiping the Lord, believing. They believed the signs. Uh, they exercised faith. That's the same thing that says God, Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. So they had this, they enter into relationship. They receive the word of God and they worship. So there's like this, this kind of uh, renewal of their faith, or for some it may have been an introduction to their faith because they've been enslaved for longer than America has been a country, remember. All right, think back to pilgrim days, and that's about how long Israel has been enslaved in Egypt. So that should give some perspective. Genesis and, and everything we read about was ancient history to them at this time, or at least semi-ancient history, as far removed as we are from the Mayflower and all those other events. So it ends with a good scene, and then in verse five, or chapter 5, afterwards, after this scene of worship and the elders of Israel rejoicing, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Now remember, your translations say the Lord, but the Lord is an English idiom that captures, the, the, the word there is Yahweh. And, and there's, we talked about a few weeks ago why they translated it as the Lord, but every time you see that, it's the name, it's the covenant name of God. I am who I am. So Moses introduces this God to Pharaoh and says, this is the God who's saying, let my people go and let us go worship him in the desert. Now, the question that people ask is, well, why did he just ask them to let them go worship him? I thought they wanted them out of slavery. And there's some debate among scholars. One of the professors I studied under, he had suggested that in the ancient Near East, you, the way bargaining would work, if you were asking a favor or if you were being polite or if you were following protocol, is you would introduce uh, uh, something less than what you desired ultimately. That would be your starting point. And then if they exceeded, then you would ask a little bit more. And then if they accepted that, then you would ask a little more. We see this in Abraham when he bargained with God for the lives of the men in Sodom. And so that could be what's going on, is, is this, this idea of let's, let us just let us go three days into the wilderness, Pharaoh. That could be a well-recognized way of initiating what Pharaoh and Moses both know will be a full exodus. Because Pharaoh seems to take it that way, that he's asking for nothing less than the full release of the people, not just a three-day extended weekend. So that's how it seems in this, and I think that makes the most sense. But again, some people say, no, this was just uh, Moses testing Pharaoh to show that Pharaoh wouldn't even let them go for three days, much less let them go entirely. And so it was revealing the hardness of Pharaoh's heart already, that God would then only harden further. Regardless of what you take, uh, I mean, he asks, let my people go into the desert to worship God. 
to hold a festival. And Pharaoh says, no. And he says, "Who? I don't even know this Yahweh person. Who is this God that I should listen to him? I am Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the firstborn of the gods of Egypt. He was the sun god. He was, he was everything. He was, his, his word was the law. And so Pharaoh is not used to having anyone demand anything of him because you didn't do that in Egypt. So the question that he says ironically is, you know, asking who is the Lord, the rest of this first half of Exodus is going to answer that question definitively for Pharaoh and for all the Egyptians and for all the Israelites. Who is Yahweh? Who, do you, who, who is this God? Well, we'll show you who he is. And we'll show you through these miraculous occurrences. And Pharaoh says, I do not know Yahweh. The whole purpose of God revealing himself was that people will know the Lord. That phrase, know the Lord, happens all throughout Scripture. That's one of the base commands of God gives in the Bible is know the Lord, to know. And it means an intimate knowledge, not just to know of, but to actually know. It's the same verb that means to have sex with. It's that intimate. It doesn't always mean that, obviously, but that's the semantic range of the word, to have a relationship, an intimate knowledge of the Lord. And Pharaoh's saying, I don't know the Lord. And by the end of this section, he will know the Lord. Then they said... So they ask him again, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert and offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. So this time they're saying, no, Pharaoh, you really do need to let us go. If you don't, he may strike us. Now that, there's some irony in that because it's actually he's going to strike Egypt with the plagues and the sword. He's going to strike Egypt with those things. So this could be a way of... Of, of Moses and Aaron warning Pharaoh, but using like a self-deprecation form of it, saying, God will be mad at us, and the implied meaning is us meaning you who's stopping us from going. Also, last chapter we saw God did come and actually do something that attempted to take Moses' life. So Moses realizes at this point, God's not a God to be messed with, and he gives a command. He expects it to be fulfilled, and Moses found out himself last chapter that even he is not exempt from God's judgment if he fails to keep God's command. So there is a healthy sense of godly fear in this request, but there could also be some warning or some foreboding couched in diplomatic language. But the point is clear. We're not playing, and this is not a God that you can just placate by saying, no, the gods of Egypt are the ones we follow here. All the other gods take a back seat. Moses and Aaron are telling Pharaoh, this is serious. You need to let us go. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? And that word is actually hard labor, uh, not just regular daily job, but Pharaoh knows he's enslaved them. Why are you taking the people away from their hard labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. How are they stopping them? Well, you know, obviously at this point, word would have gotten around to Israel, hey, we're about to be liberated. We're about to be free. This guy Moses has come after 40 years of being away, and he showed up with this proclamation that God's going to release us, and he's done all these miraculous signs. Get ready. Get ready. We're about to leave. And so there would have been a sense of, well, why are we still making bricks? Why are we still working so hard? Or at least their drudgery would have been conditioned by some celebration, and their work would have taken a back seat to that. And so Pharaoh says, you're, you know, you're, you're getting the people excited. You're stopping them from working. 
So verse 6, that same day, Pharaoh gave the order to the slave drivers, these were the Egyptians, to the Egyptian slave drivers, and to the foremen in charge of the people, that is the Hebrews who were in charge of their own people. So you had all the workers, and then over them you had the foremen, the, 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 the ones of the Hebrews that had been elevated to oversee, and then over the foremen you had the taskmasters, those are the ones who were charged with making sure that Pharaoh's words were carried out. So it was this hierarchical system. So Pharaoh gave orders that day in charge of the people. Verse 7, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for them so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So now the propaganda is in full swing, saying the way to counter this is to crush their spirits. You know, tell them you're believing in a fairy tale, you're believing in these lies. If you have time to speculate, you have time to work more. So you have to make the same number of bricks as before, but now we're not going to give you any straw. So brick making in the ancient world, if, if you've never seen it, and they still do it today in Egypt the same way, is you would take the mud and you mix in this chopped up straw. And it acts like rebar in concrete. It, it, it binds this, the brick together. And as the straw inside decays, it releases a humic acid that, that becomes somewhat of a binding agent. And it makes the bricks stable so they don't just crumble. And that's how Egypt could make bricks with sun, just putting them in the sun to dry, rather than having to put them in a kiln and fire them and make them really hard. Because they have that straw. This is ancient technology. So the bricks were pretty good. Well, if you don't have the straw, you have to do something else to, uh, to make the bricks work. So they had to then go and get whatever they could, since they weren't given any straw, which would have come from the fields and the farmers would have given them the straw to do it. Uh, they would have to go find their own stuff to act like the straw, and they would have been inferior. It would have taken them longer, but they still had to make the same amount of bricks. So it's really an impossible task that Pharaoh is setting them up to do. He's making the work absolutely impossible. Um, so, verse 10. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I'll not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people all over Egypt scattered to gather stubble to use for straw. Stubble would be the stuff you'd have to actually pull up with your hands from the leftover, you know, the, you cut down the wheat or the whatever plant, you cut it, and then the stuff that's, that, that you can eat, that's what you gather, and then the stuff that's left that you cut, that's the straw. Well, the stubble is the stuff underneath that that you actually would have to go and pull up by hand. So it's, it's a completely back-breaking labor that, that would slow everything down to a grinding halt. Um, the slave drivers, verse 13, kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required for you each day just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen, appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers, were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? And the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people, the ones who are telling them not to have straw. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let's go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You'll not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told you're not to reduce 
the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the people now, Pharaoh's plan worked. He got them to turn against Moses. Rather than directing their anger, directing their outrage towards Pharaoh, they've directed it towards Moses. The faith that they just had at the beginning of this chapter, and Moses is the deliverer and God is the one who's bringing them out, now all of a sudden when hardship has come, the real, uh, the depth of that faith is revealed. You know, Jesus tells parables about different kinds of soil, and he says there's the shallow, rocky soil, and people receive the word, and immediately they receive it with great joy, and then as soon as the sun comes out, it dries them up, and they have no roots, and so their faith is dead. And you see that a lot with people. You see that a lot with, um, you know, you go to like big evangelistic crusades, or you know, really emotional service at a church with an altar call, and people come up, and they're crying and weeping, and you know, giving their life to the Lord. Not like there's anything wrong with that. It's a great thing. But you don't ever know how genuine that is until hardship comes. You don't know the, the depth of faith until hardship comes. That's why the prosperity gospel is such a perverted lie among the body of Christ. Because it teaches the opposite of that. It teaches that if you are experiencing hardship, it's because God is judging you because you don't have enough faith. That is rubbish. Your faith is tested through the hardships. And God's plan, this is all in God's plan for his people. He sent Moses knowing that Pharaoh would be of heart of heart, knowing that Pharaoh would reject him. And God even knew what Pharaoh was capable of doing. People received the word. They heard you're going to be delivered. God heard your cries. He's going to bring you into his land. He, I know the plans I have for you. Quote Jeremiah 29, 11. And, and they're excited. And then hardship comes and it looks exactly the opposite. It looks like God has completely abandoned them. God is nowhere mentioned or nowhere directly uh, involved in this chapter. He doesn't speak in this chapter. He doesn't act in this chapter. And it looks like I am is not. And that's what they see. That's all that they can see through the eyes of, the, of their current circumstances. And so then in, in the face of that, they turn to the only person they have power to blame which is Moses and Aaron. They can't do anything against Pharaoh. They can't do anything against the taskmasters. So who do they turn on? The ones who they can turn on. They direct their anger towards the people who God specifically sent to bring them out. And we see in this, and, and, and the, the, the text repeats it over and over. Yes, Pharaoh's the one that's making their work hard. And yes, their life is miserable. And yes, for this period of time, it's worse than it was before Moses and Aaron came. Will they cling to the promises of God that they've seen, the miracles that Moses and Aaron have done, the word that they've heard? Will they cling to that when it looks like it's not happening? And that will determine Israel's history throughout much of the Old Testament. It'll look like God is not active. Those are the times when their faith is truly tested and stretched. And so throughout Scripture, um, in, in both Testaments, you see that God's timetable is radically different from ours. You know, God appears to Abraham and tells him a promise, and then 12 years later, the second time he appears to him. So there's a gap of 12 years, right? God tells Abraham, I'm going to bring your people out. I'm going to make them into this great nation and everything. 
but it's going to be 400 years from now, right? That's the time scale that God's working on. We want, God, I lost my job on Monday. I need a new job by Friday. And, and God may be thinking in terms of centuries. And, and the, the, the role that he has for you is to be something specific because you're going to be a link in a long chain that's going to lead to something greater. But yeah, we're just, God, me, 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 me. You know, and it's, it's understandable. It's not, you know, the, the, the Israelite foreman, they weren't complaining over, you know, like the, they had to do extra stapling or copying. Like they were being beaten because they weren't doing the hard labor that no one could do in the first place. So their gripe was legitimate. It's the focus of that gripe. Instead of taking it to God, they took it to Moses and Aaron and turned on them. So what does Moses do? Verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord, and that verb is shuv. It's the word that means to turn or to return. And it's the one that the prophets use repeatedly when they tell Israel, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. So Moses then turns to God and says, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. So now Moses takes this complaint, and this lets us know that this is not just like a weekend thing. Like, it didn't just happen over a couple of days. This is, this is a long period of time, ever since I've come. He came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave a decree, the decree was put into effect, the workload became unbearable. This is stuff that would take days, weeks, maybe even months. And so at the end of this now, this, this Moses is crying out to God, hey God, you sent me, but it doesn't look like anything's happening. In fact, it looks the exact opposite. Everything you said, none of it's happening. And all the things that are happening are worse than it was before. So what are you doing, God? Why have you brought... And NIV softens this. And they translate that word trouble. But that word is not trouble. That Hebrew word is evil. And it's translated evil throughout Scripture in many places. It can mean disaster. It can mean calamity. It can mean evil. It can mean trouble. But trouble is like the little board game you play. You know, think of trouble as like something minor. It's the impact of it is Pharaoh, you know, oppressing a people with slave labor isn't trouble. It's, it's evil. It's insidious. It's, it's disaster. It's calamity. It's horror. So that's what Moses is saying is Pharaoh's doing this to us. And you've brought it on, God. He actually <clears throat> blames God. But he doesn't get rebuked for it. There's a sense, like the psalmist, when you read the psalms, there's a lot of times where they blame God. They'll blame God because they know that God is ultimately the one that's in control. So he doesn't just blame God. He says Pharaoh's the one doing it. But he has enough knowledge of God's sovereignty to know that Pharaoh's only doing it because God is allowing it. And in, in the sense of sovereignty, God has brought this trouble on the people, this evil, this calamity. So he really is bearing his heart to God. And it's something in Scripture over and over. Most, most people don't realize this growing up, especially if you grew up in a Christian home or in a youth group. But Scripture gives us permission to yell at God. It gives us permission to blame God. And it gives us permission to cry out to God in anger. As long as it's real... And as long as we realize that we don't have the full picture. The psalmists do it all the time. They'll cry out to God. They'll blame God. They'll, they'll, they'll yell at God. They'll express their frustrations to God. But there's always a hint or a note somewhere in the psalm of, but you're the Lord. 
you're bigger than I am. You probably know something that I don't know that will make this make sense. But from my perspective, this makes no sense. So what's going on? And there's a real relationship. It's a real, it's not just, you know, Moses doesn't just settle for platitudes. Like, well, God is sovereign, so he must know that there's a plan. So I just need to be okay with this. Like he's watching his people get beat because of something that he did. So there's this real feeling of anguish, and he takes it to God. He doesn't take it out on Aaron. He doesn't say, oh, woe is me, and just have a pity party. He goes right to the source, to the only one who can do something about it, and he just bears his soul, which is a good picture of what prayer is. He doesn't really even ask for anything here. If you notice, he doesn't say, God, Lord, Father, Jesus in heaven, Father, Lord, God, if you just please God, you know, we start to pray and just hype up these phrases of God and if you're if it's your will if you could just Lord you know I say just about 20 times if you could just uh, make us a little more easy on us and just Lord if it's in your will I really would appreciate none of that there's none of that in Moses's prayer he just goes right to God he says this is the problem and it feels like you're to blame what's going on it's a very raw prayer a very honest prayer it's like Hannah's prayer um Later in Samuel, it's like the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. It's just this very real, authentic prayer. And so chapter 6, then, God answers it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. By my mighty hand, he will let them go. By my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So God shows up in response to Moses' genuine prayer, authentic prayer, and he says, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. And it's going to be by my hand. See, this, this is not, uh, Exodus was not a contest between Moses and Pharaoh. That's where movies and plays and, and Bible stories get it wrong. It's not at all. It's between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt who are personified by Pharaoh. Pharaoh is acting as an extension of the gods of Egypt because he's the embodiment of them. So this contest that's going to take place over the next eight chapters is going to be the God of this rabble known as the Hebrews. They aren't even the nation of Israel yet. They don't even become the nation of Israel until the exodus happens. And they get to Mount Sinai and they become a nation with a, with a full body of laws and all of that stuff. Right now they're just Hebrews, which is just a generic term for vagrants or, or, or outsiders or people that are not respectable. That's who they are. And God is going to take them through the Exodus, and he's going to make them into the nation of the Israelites. And that's who they'll remain until the exile. And then the Babylonian exile, when he brings them back to the southern kingdom of Judah, that's when they'll start to be known as the Jews. So we're at the Hebrew stage in Israel's history. They are transforming from the children of Israel into the nation known as Israel. And, and, and this is the very beginning. So it's going to be God, Yahweh, versus all of the Egyptian gods. And he's going to do these plagues that target each specific god. There's a god in Egypt, god of the frogs. There's a god of the flies and the gnats. The god of the Nile River. The god of the sun that's going to get darkened. We've got all of these gods, the god of the livestock or the bull. The god, all of these gods and the plagues are going to one by one show that they are impotent even in their, on their home turf is basically what's being communicated. God, this unknown God of the slave people is coming into the very stadium of the home team where all of their fans are there 
and he is going to put a big beat down on them. And it's going to be the goose egg of all goose eggs in terms of the score, because they're not going to score any. And then he's going to take all of the people who realize this, and he's going to bring them out into, uh, out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. So that's the big picture. That's what's going on. All of this is, it, it may seem like it's repetitive. It may seem like, okay, God, just get to the point. You know, in the movies, they skip all this. Or they do like a montage, and they'll show a bunch of different plagues and kind of put dramatic music, and then it just all happens so that they can get on with the story. But in Exodus, this is the story. These plagues are repeating, and it's, it's emphasizing, it's hammering home to the people watching, this is what your gods are, and this is who our God is. And that would have been the communicated to the Egyptians watching, and it would be communicated to the original audience of Exodus, which is their children's generation, who have come out of Egypt and are camped at the base of Mount Sinai, I mean, are camped at the plains of Moab, and are about to go into the Promised Land. That's who was reading this written down for the first time. It would have been the next generation of Israelites. So this is telling their history, telling of the deeds, telling of who they are, and more importantly, whose they are as they set out into this land of Canaan. So we are out of time exactly. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Remember, find somebody Irish and show them some love. And we'll see you next week.